Good afternoon, Jimmy Kim here, and you are listening to the greatest show on the planet, The Jimmy Kim Show. Today, I'll, I'll be interviewing Terry Adams. He's an attorney and also the former judge on the Texas First Court of Appeals. All right, Terry, go ahead and take the mic and tell us about yourself and give the audience some background about well, what you've done. Jimmy, thank you very much for inviting me to come out today and to be with your listeners on this uh, radio show. So thank you. It's a pleasure, pleasure. to be here. Uh, Again, my name is Terry Adams, uh, former justice on the first Court of Appeals, uh, was appointed to that position last year uh, by Governor Abbott. Um, it was a pleasure serving on that court. Um, in terms of my background and who I am, um, we moved to Texas, uh, my family, my parents did right out of college when I was, uh, my dad got transferred, worked with Gulf Oil. Um, we lived up in Pittsburgh, so 19, 1982. Um, he got transferred down here. Um, I volunteered to help them move, and I never left. Uh, nice. I don't blame you. I, I love Texas. It's the greatest. <laughs> and I know you do, too. It's the greatest state. Houston is the greatest city. Um, the funny thing was that my wife's parents, her dad, worked with Marathon Oil. Oh, and okay. so they got transferred from um, Ohio down to uh, Houston. Well, Baton Rouge and then Houston and moved down the street from my parents. And so that's how I met my wife. Uh, our parents were neighbors. My mom was determined to fix me up with someone. And so my, my wife was an engineering student at Duke University and her mom was like, oh, a lawyer and an engineer. You guys gotta meet. And so that's, we met, got engaged to get married and we've been married for 37 years. Very nice. So. Yeah. Well, that's a good combination. Yeah. Of intellect. Uh, yeah. Lawyer and engineer. Well, she <laughs> solve she, any any problems or issues that come up. She has all the intellect. She has all the intellect. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a good balance. It's a good balance. Well, I know your family's listening, so yeah. Good good line. Good yeah, move there. Yeah. <laughs> but we have three kids. Uh, okay. All born in Houston. Um, a son who lives in El Paso with his family and two kids. Then we have two daughters that live here in Houston. Um, our oldest daughter, her husband is um, a chef at Tony's restaurant, plug oh. for, a plug for Tony's. And then Very our nice. youngest daughter is, um, is here with, and she has a boyfriend. And so we have uh, three adult kids and three grandkids and a fourth grandchild on the way. Wow, you're, Terry, you look so young. You're, you're a grandfather? They're all, well, they're very young grandchildren. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Figures. Yeah, they're very young grandchildren. Because it's weird for me to call you a grandfather because like, right. you're very young. Right? Well, we, we got married early. Aha. Uh, uh -huh. I was 23. I think Anne was 21. She was still wow, in college when young. I asked her to get married. Right. Uh, and so we, we were blessed to have kids early. And so now we're blessed to be young-looking young grandparents. Very nice, yeah. When you'll be around a long time for, yes, you know. to enjoy them in other generations. So there you go. Yeah, yeah, surely. So. Yeah, that's yeah. I've I've never thought that it was necessary to put a timeline on making a com commitment like that in terms of marriage, right? Whether if you're younger and or if you're older, just right. whatever works out. I think it's the best way to do that. And obviously, that happened for you, and it worked out very well. It worked out great. I think. Um, right. I think I freaked her parents out and my parents out because I only knew her, Anne's gonna kill me if I tell this story, but I only knew her for six months. And so as soon as I met her, I knew she was the one. And um, You felt it in your heart. I felt it in my heart. Mm. And so I knew that 
she was the one, and so why wait? I mean, right. everyone waits a year or whatever they do before they, you know, ask someone to get married. I just knew. Right. And so um, when she came home for Christmas break, her senior year of college, that's when I asked her to get married. I'm sure her parents were thinking, oh, my gosh. I'm crazy. Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> and as a parent now, that I can, I can relate to that. But right. it, it worked. I just knew. Well, sometimes that gut instinct is right. And right. For this instance, it was. And you took action. That's probably the most important thing. And that's, it worked out. Right. And I always tell our kids, you know, always follow the voice inside you. Right. Um, and I tell them, you know, the voice inside you is not your conscience right. or something else. That's, in my opinion, that's God talking to you. So when you hear that voice, you got to listen to it, even if it seems crazy to you. Listen to it and follow it and trust it, and it will take you to the right place. And so that's kind of what this story is all about is listening to the voice inside you. That's phenomenal because – you know, the times I've always gotten into trouble, Terry, it's when I didn't listen to that voice inside. <laughs> right. That's exactly. And I end up paying for it. <laughs> right. Everyone, and I'm the same way. The times I didn't listen to it, it's like, oh, man. It's like, darn. I should have listened to that. Yeah. should have listened to that. Yeah. So should have listened to my gut. So this is one of the times when I listen to it, and that's what happens. Good things happen. Right, right. Well, at the same time, nobody's perfect. So, yeah, learn, learn from our mistakes, right? And right. just keep moving forward and get better. But don't make the same mistake over and over, right, Terry? You're not supposed to make the same mistake twice. Right, yeah, right. I agree. Well, good lessons for the listeners and viewers right. out there. That's a lot of wisdom in these short so, little spurts, right? Okay, so, yeah. <laughs> All right, Terry, next we'll go to, can you give us some more information on your, uh, your legal specialization as a lawyer? Sure. So your field of expertise? Sure. Because I don't um, think a lot of people know that about you. Absolutely. Yeah. I went to uh, South Texas College of Law for law school. Um, when I went to law school, I think like most folks who go to law school, they want to make a difference in the cases that they work on. Um, South Texas is a great law school, focuses on litigation. Um, the litigation that I wanted to work on was more in terms of driving the direction of a case. And so you have litigation in the trial court and you have litigation in the appellate courts. Um, which is, what does that mean? After a case leaves a trial court, a jury renders a verdict, the judge enters a judgment, then the party that didn't prevail go, takes it up on appeal. And at that point, the knowledge of the law or the appellate lawyer who has that knowledge of the law then can turn a loss in the trial court into a win or keep a win. Um, but that requires, it gives you the ability to direct the case. And that's what I was interested in. So. South Texas College of Law, when I went, um, the two courts of appeals in Texas um, for this area in Harris County and the, and the nine surrounding counties were located on the top floor of South Texas College of Law. The first court of appeals where I previously worked and also the 14th court of appeals. So during law school, I was able to intern at the 14th court of appeals to see if I liked this whole appellate thing. Right. Um, I just fell in love with it. The judges, there's nine judges on the 14th Court of Appeals, still are. Um, I got to work with the Chief Justice then. Oh, very nice. In, Wait, that was while you were in In law school? school as an intern. So I was wow. as yeah. an intern. What an experience. Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah, that's incredible. And um, fell in love with the whole aspect of appellate law. So right. that's what I thought I would specialize in um, and have specialized in. After law school then, I applied what's called a briefing attorney position 
Um, you may hear it in terms of the U.S. Supreme Court as a law clerk, and there are young lawyers who apply um, out of law school once they graduate to work with the judges on the Supreme Court. So that's I applied for that. There were several hundred that apply annually for a brief and attorney position on the Texas Supreme Court. They pick 18. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the Texas Supreme Court, the is Texas, that correct? The okay. Texas Supreme Court in okay. Austin. That's the highest court in, in the state, right? That is the highest court in the state. Uh, they get to pick and choose the cases they want to hear, but that's the top court in the state. Right. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be chosen Very uh, nice. to work on that out of law school. And that just further cemented my love of appellate law right. to see how the court, how it's supposed to act in terms of interpreting and applying the law to the facts of cases. Um, and is a law that we're all supposed to follow. Uh, so right. I fell in love with that. So after leaving the brief attorney position in Austin. Then I came back to Houston, uh, got a job at a a small litigation firm, and uh, told them I want to do appellate law. Uh, That was back in 1988. Um, At that point, appellate law as a specialty was at its very beginning. Oh, really? Um, There were some who had done it before, uh, but in general, law firms didn't have, at that point, established sections of appellate lawyers. And that was that's all across the country, correct? Well, mo- well, in Houston, and I think Houston. In Houston right. I mean, back then, Houston was sort of, <clears throat> I think, in my opinion, was where all the best litigators, trial court litigators, were in Houston. Oh, really? Uh, no disrespect to folks from Dallas or anywhere else, <laughs> uh, but Houston had some phenomenal litigators back in the '80s, right. and um, historically, litigators after they tried a case, they would then do the appeal themselves. And so the notion of someone else coming in and then handling your appeal after you tried the case was like, what are you talking about? It's appalling. It could, it could be. Right. And so it gradually shifted to where that's the case now because it is a separate specialty. So I was fortunate enough to start at the time when this really took off. Oh, okay. And that's how I've spent the last 32 years of my law practice um, is handling the cases up, up on appeal. Um, ultimately worked for a large litigation firm here in Houston, in which I was the head of the appellate practice group there, handled litigation all over the state and also other states as well, um, okay. managing our appellate group. Okay. Now, is that is your law firm still operating? Uh, now I have my own private practice. So right. when I was appointed by Governor Abbott to the first court of appeals, right. then I left the law firm and opened up my own law firm before I got appointed. And so now I'm back at my own law firm. Um, okay. So it is operating. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And okay. I'm still actively working, handling cases. I have one right now in the Texas Supreme Court, so we're actively working. Very nice. Yeah. So you're yeah. juggling many different hats right now. <laughs> yes. Yes. But that's good. Because I, mean, I didn't even know you were operating the law firm. Yeah. So actively practicing law, campaigning, which we'll, we talk about later. Uh, sure. Just many hats. And that's good. It keeps you young. I love I love it. That's your secret. <laughs> working hard is the key. You know, right, work, right. And working hard and being engaged in things that you enjoy, um, and you do them because you like them or love them, it just, right. it just keeps you young at heart. Right, right. Now, has the appellate law area of expertise, now has it become a lot bigger, like nationally oh, yeah. across the country? Mm-hmm. Now yes. is it a, a area where law firms do specialize in? And yep. is it very prevalent now? Absolutely. You said that when you started... It was relatively new. It wasn't so much, yeah. They would, when I first started and I told the managing partner of the first firm, this is what I want to do. You know, they hire someone off the Supreme Court, a clerk, right. 
what do you want to do now? I want to handle appeals. And it's like, you mean you want to sit at the end of the hallway and just write briefs? I don't quite understand that. They looked at you like you were crazy? Like I, yeah, like I was crazy. And I think a lot of appellate lawyers now who are my age have went through the same experience. Um, oh, okay. So it's a common, for folks my generation out of law school. Right, to went, have experienced that. Went through the same thing. Right. Now, every law firm that handles litigation pretty much has a dedicated appellate practice group that just handles appeals uh, for that law firm, and that allows the trial court litigators then, once they try a case, they can be involved in the appeal, and, they, and it's important to be involved in the appeal, but they can go back and try another case. Right. As opposed to getting involved in the appeal, which is really a, a different animal. Oh, okay. So most law firms, I hate to say every because that's an absolute, but almost almost every law firm, large and small, has a either a group of folks that just handle appeals or one lawyer that handles the appeals for their firm and handles them from other law firms as well. Okay, that's very interesting. Yeah, You know how they say you learn something every day, Terry? Yep. yep. <laughs> I just learned something really cool about yep. appellate law. It's the evolution of a practice area. Um, right. And there's right. so many, and really for Houston, it's really a function of the fact that there are so many great litigators here um, in Houston, and there was so much litigation going on that uh, really good litigators recognized the need to have appellate lawyers in their firm so they could go back out and do what they love, right. which is arguing cases to a jury and winning. Right, yeah, they can focus on their niche while these other, the appellate lawyers focus on their niche, right? Exactly. So it's separating that responsibility. So if you try to do everything, yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's hard. I mean, one of the pioneers of this was um, a, a gentleman, he's a legend, Jim Cronzer. Um, so in Houston, Texas? He was here in Houston. He, he was really the grandfather of, in my opinion, the appellate practice uh, oh. area. And he started and he sort of paved the way for everybody else. Right. Uh, and so that's what we just try to carry forward what he did and continue it on into the future. So that's what I do. Very interesting, yeah, because I, I always commonly hear about, you know, personal, personal injury law firms, commercial mm -hmm. litigation, uh, real estate, you know, attorneys or tax attorneys, but appellate areas of practice is not something I hear about as much, like, out there. And people say, well, what is that? And, and really, right. if you're, right. if you're a, a good appellate attorney, you're really, you, you talked about different specialties of substantive areas of the law personal injury, medical malpractice, legal malpractice, commercial. Right. A good appellate lawyer has to know all those substantive areas. So you tend to be more of a generalist in terms of, oh, okay. as opposed to focusing on one particular niche of substantive area of, right. of law. You should, if you want to handle lots of appeals, right. uh, be able to handle them on a numerous substantive areas, and maybe all at the same time. Wow. You may have a case involving voting, uh, voting rights Issues you may have a constitutional appeal, a medical malpractice, a commercial litigation, oil and gas appeals simultaneously in different courts at different stages, um, and so it constantly talk about staying young and learning new things. You're constantly involved in different substantive areas, so um, I'm constantly reading law. Um, right, right. When we first got when Anna and I first got married. Um, the new cases came out in these softbound green little paperback um, books that came out in the mail. I would take them home from the law firm and put them on my bedside table and read new cases every night until I fell asleep. And so, you know, for two hours or so, I'd be reading the law right. uh, so that I knew what the law was. Um, 
appellate lawyers are supposed to be the legal gurus in whatever firm they're at, or the law lawyer. Um, and so only way you can be the law lawyer is to constantly read the law. Right. So you have to be very well versed, as you said, in mm -hmm. all areas of pretty much expertise. Right. Because you can't just do one area. Right. Because you yeah. have appeals from all different all areas different, of All different substantive law. areas. Tax, right. tax and bankruptcy were the two substantive areas I didn't get involved in because right. those are so complicated. So niche. You really right. need to focus on those. But absent that, pretty much everything else um, I've done and continue to do. Oh, very nice. Yeah. And do you, so do you have other lawyers at your law firm? Is it solely you? It's yourself? just me. Okay. So I have a solo okay. practice. Uh, once I ran, once I got on the court and got off the court and now running again, it's the flexibility <clears throat> of having a solo practice is the way to go. Okay. Yeah, you have the flexibility and freedom to right. operate however you want to. Because when you campaign, you right. need it's like a second job. And so you need to be able to have the, the flexibility on how you're going to do that. Oh, yeah, right. It's a second job that turns into almost a full-time job, <laughs> right? Really, it's, I mean, it's, I mean it's, like, it's like anything. I mean, if you want to do it well, you got to throw yourself into it right. 100%. And right, so right. Um, you got to throw yourself into it. The practice of law and then this other campaigning is two full-time jobs. Oh, right, yeah, I can totally. Now, I haven't ran for office yet, right. but, you know, I'm a political activist, and I have been right. for quite a long time, and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally understand the amount of energy and time and dedication something like that would take. So I, I totally understand where you're coming from on that. But it's a, <laughs> but it's a labor of love. I mean, it's um, right, right. And I, you, you love it, right? I love yeah, it. You I love mean, being active in the community, getting out there, and doing engagement. Yep. I mean, it's just a privilege to do, and you got to have a servant's heart. Um, I love the practice of law. I love appellate work. Right. Um, but I love also serving other people and being in the community and from a, a law standpoint is where the rubber meets the road. Um, too often as an appellate lawyer or any other kind of lawyer, you're in an office with your law around you and your cases and you forget, or it's easy to forget, right. that what you're doing impacts individual people, whether in their businesses um, or the employees in a business. And so when you get to go out and do what I do now, campaigning and seeing people on the grassroots level, it reemphasizes the importance of the practice of law and our responsibility as lawyers to serve, um, as as lawyers to do our best job. So it's it's been refreshing. It's been um, invigorating for me with my law practice. Still, very nice. Yeah, it's a good contrast. Would you say well, being they, in the office and then getting out there and well, it's really as opposed to contrast, they they fit together because what you do as a lawyer in your office impacts individual people, and I think we, oh, okay. I needed to be reminded right. of the importance of what I was doing and how it impacted individuals um, right. Right. in everyday life, and um, so it's been good for that, and it's made me a better attorney. Right. Okay. Because you have right. that deep understanding of how it affects people. Right. And, <laughs> and it's easy. It's easy just to focus on your work and right. to not connect how it impacts people in our community and it does that and it's important to remember that oh yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah, at the end of the day it's all about the people right it's essentially all about, it's all about the people and you know when i was when governor abbott appointed me to the first court of appeals then that message and that lesson got reemphasized because as a member of the, the first court of appeals you're working for you're a public servant and right. you are in fact working for everybody in the community across right. 10 counties and so the notion as a lawyer that you're impacting people gets emphasized 
as the truth, these are all the people that are that you're working for. Right. Uh, everyone is your boss. Right. And you represent and worked with ten counties. Is that correct in that position? Right. That court serves. Yeah. Can, so tell us more about that position that you previously held, sure. and so our listeners and viewers can kind of have that information. Sure. Because a lot of people they don't understand what that is. Right. A lot of folks are thinking. Well, he's talking about the Court of Appeals. What the heck is that? <laughs> right. Um, right. In Texas, we have two high courts. Uh, and we mentioned the Texas Supreme Court. Right. Uh, Texas is unusual or unique. I guess unique is a better word. Um, we have two Supreme Courts, for lack of a better description. We have a Texas Supreme Court that handles all the civil cases at the highest level. And our second Supreme Court, I apologize to the court members, it's not the second, but it's called the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. And that's the high court for criminal cases. And so we have two high courts, um, civil one, criminal court. Um, below that are 14 courts of appeals that are scattered across Texas based on population. Two of those 14 courts of appeals are located in Houston, the first court of appeals and the 14th court of appeals. Okay. And those two courts of appeals have overlapping or concurrent jurisdiction, which means they handle or they serve the same 10 counties. Okay. And so they serve counties from Grimes County to the north where Navasota is all the way down to Galveston County, where Galveston is, and pretty much every county in between. What those courts of appeals do is that they review judgments in every civil, criminal, and family law case that comes down in every single trial court right. across that 10-county area. And those courts of appeals, in this instance, the first court of appeals then decides if those judgments are correct or not. Okay. Um, when we talk to people about the first court of appeals, I tell them, um, and same for the 14th court, that they're the most important courts in Texas for the people listening to this radio program, okay. which is probably everybody in the 10-county area. Um, and the reason why I say that is because the Supreme Court of Texas has discretionary jurisdiction. It gets to pick and choose the cases it wants to hear. And so, for example, last year the Texas Supreme Court had 1,000 appeals filed with it they, uh, they decided to hear about 9%. So 90 cases is what they heard. Of those 90 cases, about 5% of them came from the first court of appeals. So that's between four and five right. of their other caseload were cases from the first court. But a better way to understand it is the first court of appeals had 720 civil appeals filed with it last year. So out of those 720 civil appeals filed with the first court of appeals, between four and five were granted and heard by the Supreme Court of Texas, which means the other 716, 99% of the cases that the first court of appeals decided in civil matters didn't go any further. That was the final word in that case was the first court of appeals. Right. And the criminal numbers are pretty much the same. So when I say it's the most important court in Texas for the folks in this 10 county area, because whatever the first court or the 14th court says is more is more than likely going to be the final word in that case. Right, because the small percentage of ones that go exactly go right. up. Right, it's probably, okay. and again, I'm not a mathematician. If Ann was here, she could she could do the math for the me. The engineer wife. Right? Right, the engineer <laughs> wife, right. She could tell the math for me, but it's right. probably about 99%. Okay, um, which is very small right. compared to... Right, exactly. Right. So there's a 1% chance that right. whatever these courts decide will get reviewed um, and potentially get reversed. So that's why it's really important to know what these courts of appeals do, how they impact your life, 
in civil, criminal, and family law cases and understand that what they decide is going to be the last word in the case more than likely. Okay. Now, so that leads me to my next question. How does the Supreme Court decide which one to take or which one not to take? Does that's, it depend? Uh, that's what I'm confused about. That's a really good question. And, and they have a broad <clears throat> jurisdictional parameter, which is okay. cases that impact the, the jurisprudence of the state. Uh, okay. And that's kind of amorphous uh, because what you think may impact the jurisprudence of the state may be something different than what I think impacts the jurisprudence of the state. Right. Uh, typically, it's something where multiple courts of appeals in Texas among the 14 have looked at it. Perhaps two or three have gone one way and two or three have gone the other way. That's an easy example of a legal issue that would impact the jurisprudence of the state. Um, what you want, the goal of the law is to be consistent and predictable at the end of the day so that people know what the law is and how to follow it. Right. Um, so important to the jurisprudence of the state is to, if there's confusion or uncertainty about an important issue, legal issue, that may or likely will arise in numerous courts of appeals, that would be something that would fit that category. Um, the Texas Supreme Court has nine justices on it, and so they meet in conference and they decide on a case-by-case -case basis which cases about 9%, which of those cases meets that criteria okay. according to that court. Okay. And that's, how they, and that's how they decide. Okay. And they try to be as objective as possible based they, on what you're telling me. They do. And they right. have a two-tiered briefing system, so they okay. have lots of briefing. Um, and they have briefing from other folks that come in as friends of the court. Uh, okay. But, yeah, that's how they decide that. Okay. All right. So... What initially motivated you to run for office? Is it because of what you saw while you were in college as, or, or excuse me, in law school while you were interning at these, these institutions? Is that what kind of propelled you to eventually say, hey, I really like what I see, that what they're doing, and I want to be in that position one day? How, how did that happen? I mean, growing up, I've always been interested in politics. Um, Always been interested in politics. My dad, you know, my dad and mom, they always, growing up in the Northeast and with our last name, they always reemphasized our founding fathers and the importance of our government and the importance of being involved in our government um, and serving people. And uh, so it's something I've always been interested in. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure in what capacity and how to do that. Once I got to law school and had the opportunity to intern on the 14th Court of Appeals and then be a briefing attorney on the Supreme Court of Texas. When you work at those courts in that capacity, it's everything kind of clicked. It's okay. Like, this is what I want to do. That's you when know, you did see it. Okay. I, day, I figured. One day I want to come back here, you know, when I feel that I have the requisite amount of experience and right. knowledge, come back and serve. And mm -hmm. so um, now that the kids are all out of college and they're independent and doing their own thing. I've done this for 32 years. I think now what I, you know, my mindset was now I feel like I can give back based on that experience level and right. I can give back the time experience to serve. Very nice. So yeah, it was all, it all goes back to exposure that you had. Right. That's, that's why I like telling people in general, yeah, get out there, go, go try stuff, go do stuff, right. go do things you would have never imagined you'd be doing last year. Right, exactly. I mean, when I interned on the 14th Court of Appeals, a number of the judges would, I mean, the interns on the court, you would sit in the library and wait till the judge, a justice would come and grab you to uh, 
Oh, really? <laughs> to do work. So it's kind of like being in the bullpen. Take the trash out. <laughs> no, no, we didn't have to do that, thankfully. But there were, there were two or three of us, and uh, they would, you know, judge would come by and grab one of us right. um, or several of us, but usually one of us to go do work. And you try to do your, obviously do your best job so you keep being the one who gets grabbed. Uh, right. to go do new projects and um, then you get you form a relationship you get to have lunches and then right. they start sharing their knowledge and experience with you and um, when that happens then you learn that's something that you want to pass on um, be a mentor to folks younger and, and share your experiences okay so it's a good learning process right right and having that mentorship is priceless oh right from I mean, those types of people Right, and for any you know, for any industry or occupation, to find that mentor who's willing to invest time and teach right. you the things that you can't read in a book about how to do what you have an interest or passion for is 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 priceless. So, yeah, again, I it, agree. Yeah, you had some great. It sounds like you had some great mentors yourself. I was very fortunate, and when I right. at the Supreme Court of Texas, I was fortunate or blessed to work for Raul Gonzalez. Uh, First Hispanic uh, elected judge in the state of Texas. Okay. Yeah, I'm uh, not familiar with that person, but he's he's a legend. Okay, he's a legend. Wow. He's 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 a legend. Uh, it was a blessing to work for him, but he was a mentor and taught me right. so much during that year about the practice of law and, frankly, about how to be a good appellate judge. Okay. Um, and he's still we're still in contact. Well, very good uh, yeah. today. So he's he's been a wonderful mentor. Well, you have big shoes to fill. I do. I do. <laughs> if you say he's a legend, he's a so Terry, legend. You're you're working way, you're working your way there too, right? He's to a be legend. a legend. Well, it's something you have. It's something you have to earn. It's something you have to earn over time. And so I agree. I was yeah, fortunate right. to learn from him, and um, sure. I look I look forward to earning it. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm excited about that. I'm excited yeah, you yeah. say that. It's a great thing to be ambitious and and well, set the bar high. Well, you set the bar high. I mean, because you learn from so many people, and you want to emulate what. And you want to take what they gave you and take it to the next level. Yes. Yes, I agree. I like that word, emulation. Right. If you see somebody successful or see something you'd like, yeah, emulate that person or try to do better, like you just said. Right. Well, if they're going to invest in you as well, then you, right. want to, you want to honor their decision to invest in you and to mentor you. And you want to, you want to make them proud. Yeah, I and agree. So take it to the next level, and then you get to share that knowledge, the combined knowledge with other people, and then they can, they can take it even higher. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Even myself, personally, I've had some pretty good mentors myself, and I'm still working with some mentors that have shaped me to who I've become right now. I've told you about that, a little bit about that. Yep. So, yeah, very grateful and fortunate to have had that as well, yeah, just like yourself. But that's the thing about the practice of law, or, and I think any business as well, but law is, is nice because they call it practice of law. Uh, yeah. As soon as you think you've got it or that you know it all, uh, and I think this was good advice that I learned is as soon as you think you know it all, you're screwed, right? I mean, Agreed. Yeah. Every, every day should be a learning process right. and you should never quote unquote think that you got it. Uh, it's a humbling medicine business. Anything is that complicated that every day you should be learning and you should always feel there's something new to learn every day and to get better. Yes. Yeah. The more yeah. I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. I'm sure you've heard that many times. Well, it's exactly true because the more you learn and the more you get into something, you realize, oh, I'm not anywhere close right, right. to knowing what I thought I knew. Right. Um, and there's so much more to learn. And so, Absolutely. Yeah. But it's a great process. I mean, again, learning keeps you young at heart um, when you realize how much you have to learn. But 
there's so much good you can do with that knowledge. I agree. So. Yeah. Wisdom is, is so important and, and essential. Right. And I, I strive to search for that wisdom. I mean, we can talk about like being a radio studio or radio host. You yeah. can do that your whole life. And there's still things that you have to learn about that one particular field. Mm -hmm. So yeah, what you said is, yeah, it's totally on point in regards to that. So Tara, you, as your previous position, you were campaigning in 10 counties. Is that correct? That's so correct. what are your what's your biggest takeaway from uh, doing run, pretty much being around 10 counties, your experiences doing that and things that you learned? Because a lot of people don't get that chance. It's fascinating. I mean, mm -hmm. at first, when you do it for the first time, when you right. go to your first event, it's a little intimidating, nerve wracking, a little nerve wracking, because <laughs> most people, even lawyers, are not 100% comfortable with public speaking, and especially right. appellate lawyers. I right. mean, we can go to court and argue a case in a court of appeals or a Supreme Court. We prepare for it for a week or two. We can get geared up and go do it. Right. Uh, typically, I'm pretty much an introvert. Uh, oh, really? And so, yeah. And so the idea of going mm. into a room full of people that I may be meeting for the first time right. and then talking about myself right. was not something that's intuitive. Uh, you become more able to do it with practice, but it's something different. And so every day you're talking to groups of people contemporaneously, uh, invariably educating them about what the court system is, but also talking about yourself. Right. Uh, what I learned from the process is that folks, no matter what, what community they're from, whatever economic strata they're in, there's so much more in common that we all have uh, than what divides us. And the commonality among different communities, among different ethnic groups, among different um, financial backgrounds, everyone wants the same thing. And everyone believes in the same thing, which is the American dream. And they, they want, they care about their family, their faith, and they want the government in general to get out of their paycheck and get out of their life. Right. And they're just trying to make ends meet and do their best job to raise their family. And right. that commonality cuts across everything. That's, that was my biggest lesson. Okay, yeah, I, I really like that. Terry, what is your current, your current thoughts about Houston and Harris County politics? So yeah, local. You know, I would just, um, I guess the, I'll preface that by saying what my viewpoint is and not sure. everyone may agree with it, but sure. um, you know, my viewpoint on our form of government and where we should be both nationally and on a local level is I, I point people to the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. Um, and it says that we have God-given rights, rights that are inalienable, um, of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and safety. And that those rights are given to us by God, not, not given to us by government, can't be taken away by government, um, and that the role of government is limited to ensuring or protecting those God-given rights. And when government, in my view, steps beyond protecting those God-given rights, it stepped outside of its role. So going back to Harris County, I think it's, in my opinion, um, and again, this is my opinion only, not anything right. that would be reduced to a, a judicial opinion, right. is that it's gone too far. It's, it transcends what I believe the founders contemplated when they started this country. Okay. And so that goes the same for Texas and the U.S.? Because I was going to ask you that as my next question, but you already pretty much answered it. 
the U.S. is gone. I mean, the, the U.S. is the same. Texas is doing its best to right. go back and emulate and historically has done that, is stay true to the founders, the principles of our founding fathers, um, that limited the government should be limited. Um, right. It shouldn't be all expansive. It's not our, it's not the big brother. Um, right. And I think Texas has done a good job, um, okay. a better job than maybe local and national. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you mentioned the founding fathers because I'm a big fan myself of our founding fathers and the documents they created. Right. Which is why we're here right now. Right. And I've studied a lot of them pretty deeply. Well, they're genius documents. I mean. Right. I mean, to me, the key document, and again, people could disagree, is the Declaration of Independence. I mean, because the right. Constitution is based on those principles, and they're basically incorporated into the Constitution. But that document was the first of its kind in the history of the world. Right. I mean, at that point in time, in early 1700s, every form of government was centralized government, kings and queens, monarchies. Um, yes. And the rights that you that people had were given to them by the monarchy, and the, monar and the monarchy, the king or queen, could take them away. And they right. could- In an instant. In an instant, and if right. you didn't do what they said, they could kill you, um, right. including not go to the right church. So rights were given and taken away by kings, um, and so our founding fathers decided that wasn't a good idea, um, that there was more in, in, more involved in life than that, and, go, and that government should be by the people, for the people, and that the emphasis of power should be the people, not the government. And so the Declaration of Independence, against that backdrop, to me, is the most courageous, awe-inspiring document um, right. in the history of the world. And that's the foundation for our country. And it goes back to your question about my views on local and national Right. We've strayed from that, and when we do stray from that, then we go to a place that our founding fathers were trying to avoid. Right, right. Yeah, those those are some very intelligent men, or very intelligent people, and if I could go right. back in time to meet anybody, I would probably want to sit down at a meeting with them and just pick their brains. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were so courageous. I mean, think, right. I mean, because each of them gave up their life for that To do that. Because right. they were hunted down by the British. Right. Many lost their lives. And, their, and or their livelihood because they were signatories on that document. Um, right. And so it wasn't some idle thing. I mean, they put their whole heart and soul into where we are now as a country in terms of these, this landmark principle of we're going to have a, a country based on God-given rights where the power is invested in the people. I mean, that was extraordinary. And it still is extraordinary. And it is when I think about it. It's a timeless yeah. thing, and here we are. Right. You know, because of them. Since 1774, here we are, right? right? And so where do we take it next? And how do we make sure government doesn't transcend where it's supposed to go? Right. So, you need to preserve that, right, right Terry? And, and so that's my personal view. Preservation. Uh, that's key. That's my personal view. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. What are your thoughts about the lockdowns that we've had, you know, over the last few years and then kind of what's going on right now as they're they may re-implement those restrictions that they had with, in regards to personal and then business, shutting down businesses. Yeah, I mean, for me, again, my personal view is that it goes beyond the role of government, right? right? I mean, government, you know, this country was set up in the Declaration of Independence to have a country of personal responsibility. And again, if the government is doing things beyond protecting our God-given rights of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness right. and safety, and safety is not health, uh, in my view. 
Right. Uh, then it's going too far. And so ordering people, and I understand the rationale on the other side, but that's not this form of government. And okay. That's not what we stand for. And so there needs to be individual responsibility. Right. Governments should not tell businesses when to open and close, uh, when they can hire, when people should be laid off. It's not, in my view, the role of government. Okay, so you think it's out of the scope of what they should be doing? I think it's gone too far. Okay, and then obviously you probably feel the same about the masks as well. Again, in my view, I think it should be personal responsibility. And I understand the other side of the argument, but I think everyone has a right to wear a mask. Right. Everyone has a right to social distance, just like people have a right not to wear a mask. Um, And so people need to exercise their their rights responsibly and in consideration of other people. Right. Okay. If someone wants to wear a mask and social distance and the whole nine yards, people who don't want to wear a mask need to be considerate and vice versa and respect that exercise of liberty. Okay. So what you're saying is nobody should be forced to do that, though. No one is should that be, correct? No one should be forced okay. to do that, uh, Okay. in my view. Right. Because then where does that stop, right? I mean, and even right. with four shots, I mean... Again, right. I understand the rationale on the other side, but if the government can tell people what they need to put in their body or on their body, uh, then where does that stop? What's next, right? Yeah, where does, <laughs> right, and I'm always, as lawyers, we're right. always concerned about, well, what's the president? If we take this step, then what's the next step after that? Right. Um, and that's what concerns me about these issues. If, if, if we say it's okay for the government to do these things, then what's the next step? What's going to prevent us from... The government telling us, you know, how we can run details of our life, and right. is that what we really want? Um, if you can, if the government can tell you what has to go into your body, or what you have to wear. I'm not sure. I mean, then I think we've just totally transcended our form of government from, right. from the government by the people for the people to a centralized government that our founding fathers sought to escape. Right. Right. Yeah. It's in my personal view again. No, absolutely. I mean, I like I like freedom. Just simply said. Well, I, well, I think you know, we, and we watch the people at the border, and we watch what's happening in Cuba, and we see, and we've seen it over and over again, people leaving centralized forms of government to come here to experience the American dream. Right. Um, and I, you know, the fact that everyone wants to come here to experience the American dream is a testament to the fact that it works. Um, right. It's the envy of the world. So how do we protect it? Um, and make sure that the American dream, which is based on individual work, um, individual responsibility, and individual responsibility right. is preserved. Right, right. Okay. Um, so. All right, Terry, what are some of your hobbies? What do you like to do for fun? Or is it just work, 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 work? It's been a lot of work. Um, <laughs> do you been, have time for hobbies? It's been a lot of work. I mean, my hobby, this, my wife would be crazy, but. Um, it's my family, honestly. Okay. I, mean, I mean, the right. most important thing is, right. is family. And so I've right. spent a lot of family. time in the last several years um, with my parents. Uh, they were, their health was declining, right. and my dad just recently passed away. But uh, So I've been a caregiver oh, okay. for both of that's, them. That's a lot, too. A lot. And, a lot of um, work. Yeah. But it's, you know, that's what family is for. Right. And to try to teach the kids by, by example that the most important thing is family. So my hobby, such as it is, uh, I think it's important, is family and to make sure that everyone is doing what they need to be doing right. and I can be there for them. Um, hobbies that don't involve family, 
I like to exercise. And so. Oh, very good. Me too. So exercise, uh, which happens to be a healthy exercise, it keeps me going and uh, so I can do all the things I want to do. So I try to exercise every day. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I didn't know that. Do you like to jog or walk or cycle? I walk Memorial Park every day. I like oh, the bicycle. very nice. And yeah. I also like to lift weights. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, I like to do those two things too. So kind of a nice diversity, cardiovascular, right. and then lifting weights is a nice way to, uh, it's a nice way to relieve stress. Right, and then you can keep the guns. Well, <laughs> I, don't know if I, I don't know if that's the case for me or not, but it's uh, when you're laying on a bench and you got a bunch of weight um, over your chest that it motivates you in a substantial way. Right, all right, Terry, we're gonna wrap up with the last question. I always do this one. The best question of the day. Okay. Three tips to be successful in life. It's for all of our listeners and viewers. Three, three best tips. Three tips to be successful in life. I mean, the first thing I would say is never give up. Always persevere. Um, never give up on anything. Persevere always. Uh, faith. I don't think you can do anything in life without faith. Um, life's hard. And right. without faith and trusting in God, um, it's just not going to work. You have to let go and trust. Um, and again, family. Uh, stay close to your family. Uh, if you have faith in family and then perseverance, uh, that's, for me, those are the three keys um, to, to success. And I think for most people, faith, family, and perseverance will take you a long, long way. All right. To everybody out there listening and to all of our viewers, thank you so much for tuning in today. Terry Adams, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Right. Tune in next week, Monday, 12 to 1 p.m., Jimmy Kim Show. See you then. Have a good day.